had a couple more announcements I, I missed when it was announcement time. The daily walks for August are in the back there. So if you're going through the Bible in the year, pick up a daily walk in, in the back there so you can catch up with, with what they're doing with the year. You can start the daily walk anytime. It's just reading the Bible in the year. And then finally, uh, 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 we've reached a, a huge mountain here. Mike Cressman's birthday today. I mean, happy birthday, Mike. So, I told him the older he gets, the... Never mind. As you get older, the, you know, the age is there. It's not so old anymore, you know. It's like, well, it's not so bad. All right, I'm going to stop talking about that. If you have your Bibles, if you would, turn to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the first uh, seven verses. If anyone needs a Bible, just raise your hand and Nick will get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Anybody need a Bible, just raise your hand. Everybody brought their Bibles? Good. Awesome. There you go. You're welcome to keep it. Don't let Nick charge you for them. They're free. Old joke, but it works. <laughs> Revelation chapter 2, the first seven verses, we start to read Jesus' words here. Verse 1, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered, and have patience, and have labored for my namesake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent." But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The title of my message this morning is Church Life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, Lord, to be in this place where we can right now be free to listen to your spirit, speak to our hearts. We thank you for your word and the power that you've given your word to change our lives, Lord, as we just uh, dig into it and we learn more about you. We pray, Father, if there's anyone here that is yet to know you as their Lord and as their Savior, that through our time together, Lord, they would see your love for them and they would turn from their sin and turn to you today and uh, find you as their Lord and as their Savior. Bless our time together, Lord. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we begin, really, chapters 2 and chapters 3 of what is known as the seven letters to the seven churches. You know, there was a time, not too long ago, where people actually wrote letters at a piece of paper and what's called a pen, and you would actually write on that and you'd send it in the mail, or what we now call snail mail. You know, I think it's getting low, slower the longer it goes. No one really writes letters anymore. Nowadays, we just shoot off this quick email and we're done. 
You know, I've always liked the story about the man from Chicago who got tired of the cold in December, so he decided to take a vacation down to Miami Beach where it's quite warm. His wife was on a business trip, and she was planning to meet him the next day. So when he arrived in Miami, he thought he'd shoot her a quick email to his wife, but she'd changed her email address, and he thought he had it memorized, but it turns out that he had one letter off, and he sent an email not to his wife, but instead this email to a different person altogether. It reached an elderly preacher's wife whose husband had just passed away the day before. And so this grieving widow was checking her email, and she looked at the monitor screen, and she screamed, and she fainted. Family members come running in. What did she just read? Here was the message on her computer. Dear wife, just checked in. Everything is prepared for your arrival tomorrow. P.S. It sure is hot down here. <laughs> Sometimes our emails can get sent to the wrong person. Sometimes we get emails not meant for us. I'm getting emails in Spanish like I'm a company and they're ordering things from me. I don't have anything to sell you. I don't even know what it's saying. But when Jesus sent an email, a letter, if you will, it's to the right people with the right words at just the right time. And that's what Jesus' seven letters to the seven churches is all about. Powerful letters burning with a sense of urgency to get to our hearts and into our lives. Their messages are as timely and and vital today as when they were first written some 2,000 years ago. Because this is the Lord's heart to His church. What our church life should be like as we read and go through these seven letters. Now, in order to understand these letters, we must understand the divine outline that God has given to us for the book of Revelation. We've looked at this the last couple of weeks. John was instructed in, first, in Revelation 119 to write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And John, in chapter 1, presented those things which are seen, specifically how he saw the Lord. He saw the Lord, and the Lord is instructing him. Then in chapters 2 and 3, the Lord says, write these things which are. The things which are, we know, is the church age, from the time that Jesus rose uh, from the dead to, to the time of the rapture of the church. And then finally, the third outline of the book of Revelation, things which will take place after this. And that's chapters 4 through chapters 22 and the book of Revelation are the Lord's program. So you have the divine outline, how, how things are all going to play out. Now, this morning, as we start chapter 2, it's the things which are, and Jesus really told them to write in verse 7 of chapter 1, if you look there or it's on the screen, what you see, write in the book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now, with that said, there are four different ways in which we can understand the message given to these seven churches. Number one, they are applied historically. That is, they were written to actual churches at that time. There really was a church of Ephesus and a church of Smyrna and Pergamos and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. In fact, even though it says there are seven churches in Asia, there's 
there's, there were more churches around at that time, but seven specifically it's saying to you. And, that, and geographically, though that, that, that is, place has changed, it's now uh, Western Turkey, but at the time it's in Asia. And actually the, the route in which the churches were was actually the old postal route. So they would go to Ephesus first and then to, to Smyrna and Pergamos. And so they're in the order of the postal route as they would go on there. So maybe if you're an ex-postman, that would you know, speak to your heart, but I don't know spoke to my heart. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, next, <laughs> it speaks to us prophetically. It speaks to us prophetically. We have a picture of the complete church age, starting with the church of Ephesus. That was a, the early church as it started to lose its grip. It was leaving its first love. Then we moved to the church of Smyrna. This speaks of the church that uh, went under intense persecution. Many as six million believers being martyred for their faith. Moving down church history, there's Pergamos and Thyatira. This was the time where really pagan idolatry was introduced into the church and a time historically known as the Dark Ages. Keep moving down. The Church of Sardis speaks of the time in church history of the Protestant Reformation as that took place. And then ending up with the two streams of the Church of the Last Days, the Church of Laodicea, the, the lukewarm church, and the church of Philadelphia, the church, uh, awakening church, a church with a little strength. Now what's interesting is, is John is, is uh, given these words, he's speaking of the future to him, but for us, some 2,000 years later, we can look back and see they exactly as they worked out prophetically as God's word was spoken to him. Each one of these represents a church age. Because when God speaks of the future, it's not a stretch for him. It's like us speaking of our past. God can speak of the future in that way. Next, they're applied number three, practically. See, they, they teach us a lot about church life, our priorities, our focus as a church, how to respond when things happen within the church, how should we be living in light of all that's going on in our world today. And folks, let me tell you, there's a lot going, in our world, going on in our world today. We are living... For the first time where the church is actually being attacked in America. It's hard to believe, but, but it's true. On Friday night, maybe you caught this. Rioters and left-wing activists brought in a stack of Bibles and burned them along with the American flag in the streets of Portland outside the federal courthouse. We're burning Bibles in America. Can you believe? I can't believe that. We're seeing leading, or rather left-leading governors calling church services non-essential. No other time in, in my generation that I've known of that I've seen the church attacked in America like it is today. And it's all under the guise of, of a pandemic state of emergency, telling churches they cannot gather together, but it's okay for pro protesters to, to gather together. Or limiting how many people can gather together in a church, telling churches you're not allowed to sing worship songs in a church. I recently listened to an interview with Pastor Jack Hibbs of Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills, and Charlie Kirk of Turning Point, talking about how the churches were shut down at Easter. We were shut down. We did an online service at Easter, but uh, at Jack Hibbs Church there in Chino Hills, he was asked how many people usually give their lives to the Lord around Easter time. He says about 150 people at his church. It's a big church. So 150 people that normally would give their life to the Lord, it didn't happen. And they made the remark, instead, those souls are out rioting now in cities. Our churches are under attack. 
I mentioned last week that Calvary Chapel, Dayton Valley, Nevada, took the governor all the way to the Supreme Court for allowing casinos to stay open with thousands of people coming in and out of them, but limiting the church attendance to 50. And Calvary lost that battle in the Supreme Court, five to four. Goes on. Pastor John MacArthur, many of you know who he is of Grace Community Church, said that his church would not be complying with the state and local mandates restricting the gathering of how many people can worship together. In fact, he said this, and I quote, We respectfully inform our civic leaders that they have exceeded their legitimate jurisdiction and faithfulness to Christ prohibits us from observing the restrictions they want to impose on our corporate worship services. Taking a stand, even though L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti has threatened to cut off utilities to churches and businesses if they do not comply with the order. I was told that it was posted on the Internet that Grace Community Church may actually be raided this morning because of them gathering together. I don't know if that's true. It's the Internet. Listen, I applaud churches in California that have said there's a line we will not cross when it comes to obeying the government and that is any time it conflicts with the Word of God, we will obey the Word of God 100%. And, and they have vowed to stay open, will continue to preach the gospel and to preach the Word, and so will we. But here's the thing I've noticed. There are churches today that are still closed because of this pandemic. And while I agree, we need to be cautious. And if, if there's you know, health concerns, by all means, stay home. But, but we need to understand that the church has just as much responsibility as a hospital in caring for the needs and the spiritual needs and the emotional needs of, of folks. And there comes a time where, where a point where we have to make sure we're following God's word. When it comes to the mandates and the ordinances, not simply bowing down to whatever the government says. Jesus said, we are his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now that doesn't mean that the church is perfect. But that's why we look to God's word. And that's why these seven letters uh, said to these churches help us to navigate through these difficult times. To help us to know how to respond practically to all that is happening in our world today. Because almost every problem, every difficulty, every challenge that, that faces the modern church are addressed in these seven letters. So, these letters are applied historically, prophetically, practically, and finally, number four, they're applied personally. Personally. That is, when you look at Jesus' words to the seven churches, you see that it speaks to each individual Christian. It causes us to examine our lives to see where we're at with the Lord or where we need to be with the Lord. See, there are Ephesian Christians today. Those that have left their first love, they're no longer on fire for the Lord as they, they used to be. So these words are for them. There are Smyrna Christians going to church today. Those that are being persecuted for the gospel's sake, these words are for them. Sadly, they, there are Laodicean Christians today. Those not really on fire for the Lord, neither really completely given over to the world. They're just kind of lukewarm, and these words are for them. There's the Philadelphian Christians, which I hope we are. They have a little strength living for the Lord. God has something to say to each one personally, and we can go on. They're just clear lessons from the Lord to each one of these churches that we can look at and apply to our own lives personally and ask ourselves the question, am I like one of these people? Because Jesus ended each one of these letters with, He that has an ear to hear, let him hear. And as I look around the room, you know, we've all had our, our face masks on wrapped around our ears, so we all have ears. 
We need to listen to what Jesus has to say to us. So Jesus begins, look at verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now he's speaking here to the representatives of the church. Over in chapter 1, uh, the seven stars are identified as the seven messengers of the church. Some translations put it angels. And so either he's addressing an angel representing a church, or if you take the word messenger at face value, he's perhaps speaking to the pastors of these churches. And I, I lean towards Jesus speaking to the pastors. And then the churches are represented as the lamp stands. So he's speaking to the leaders and the churches. And he starts off with words of, of commendation. Then he adds words of criticism. And then he gives words of correction. And that really is our outline for, for most of all the letters to the churches. We'll see a commendation, a criticism, and a correction. Which, by the way, if you're taking notes, those are our three points this morning. But it's a good pattern to follow. If by chance you have to confront someone, you know, that might need correction, to find something good to say about them or to them before you bring in that, that critique. You know, you might say, hey, hey, you know what, there's a lot of things that you're doing good. I know you're a hard worker, and, and I know you take this job very seriously, and you do your best, but, but I just have a couple of issues I want to bring to your attention. Rather than, than just saying, man, you better get your act together or you're out of here. Well, you say, well, well, what if they're not doing anything right? Well, just kind of find something to say, hey, you, you sure are human today. Way to go, you know, your person. See, Jesus starts off this letter with point number one, a commendation. Commending the church of Ephesus for many things that they were doing right. For starters, we see the church was a very active church. Very active church. Look at verses two and three. It says, I know your works your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my namesake, and have not become weary. That's very commendable. These guys weren't just workers. They were hard workers. They gave the Lord their very best. And the Lord is saying, good job. In fact, that word for labor here could be translated to the point of exhaustion. They were working themselves to the bone. They were sacrificing themselves for the things of God. And that certainly is commendable and doesn't go unnoticed by the Lord. And I have to say the same thing is true for many of you here this morning. I know we have many people that are involved in the many different ministries here at Calvary. I think of all you folks that helped out in the VBS last week. It was amazing. It was well worth it. And as I said already, it was exhausting. <laughs> And I know as a pastor that I don't always have the, the opportunity to come up to each and every person involved in ministry and say, just thank you, good job. But I want you to know that all you do is appreciated. So many of you have served in this fellowship for so many years faithfully and, and, and consistently and have not wavered from your service to the Lord. And I am so thankful, thankful for you, praying for the ministry, praying for my family, praying for me as well. Not even knowing which ones that you are, just knowing that you're doing it, it is such a blessing. And I say, as Jesus says here, good job, thank you, keep it up. So this church was a, a hard-working church, but we also see it was a discerning church. Look at verse 2 again. 
He says, I know that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested them who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. It's interesting that today we have people calling themselves apostles. I am apostle so-and-so. Yet one of the requirements of being an apostle, according to Scripture, was you had to be an actual eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here Jesus is saying, good job, church. You've rooted out the liars. They were very discerning. They were very careful in how we need to follow their example, especially in the days in which we are living. Because one of the signs of the last days, God said, and warned us was that there would be an increase of false teaching and false prophets. And we know most false teachers are very, very dangerous in that they present truth with lies. They mix error with truth and it confuses many young believers. We're told in 1 John that we're to reject those that deny that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. In fact, John tells us in 1 John 4, 1 through 3, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. To deny that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is to deny the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What churches do that? Well, to name a few, Islam, the religion, they deny it. Jehovah Witnesses, Christian scientists, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, i.e. the Mormons. Oneness Pentecostal, Unitarian Universalist, the Way International, the United Church of God. Just a small sample of those that deny the deity of Jesus Christ. Outright apostates. They deny that he's a creator, deny that Jesus' Jesus' blood was for atonement, deny his virgin birth, even mock the idea of a second coming. Listen, Jesus said we can expect these things to happen in the last days. In fact, in writing to this church, the Apostle Paul said this in Ephesians 4.14, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. The church listened to that. Jesus commends them for that. They were discerning. They were careful. We too need to be alert. We need to be careful. Then Jesus says in verse 3, you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. Jesus is saying, look, church, you've done great. You've stayed focused. You've worked hard in the ministry. You've been patient, which is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. You've stood for truth. You've rooted out the deceivers. You've hung in there. You've not given up. Way to go, church. And I can imagine the leaders in the church reading this letter, maybe out loud, and they're going, oh, man, this is great. Man, we're, we're doing what the Lord says. We're doing really good. Then someone reads, nevertheless. Nevertheless, Lord. What do you mean, nevertheless? Oh, we don't want to nevertheless. We were doing so good. No, nevertheless. That brings us to point number two, the criticism. Look at verse four. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Jesus points out to them that the relationship he once enjoyed with them has changed. Other things have gotten in the way. You've left your first love, he says. Now, here's the big question of the day, really, for us personally. Have you left your first love relationship with the Lord? 
Has our work for Jesus overtaken our worship for Jesus? Have you become weary? That's a question that, that you have to answer for yourself as an individual. But we know that Jesus sees all, and I believe we all know whether or not we've left our first, the first love relationship or not. See, what this is saying is, though, when, you, you know, when it says you've left your first love, a better translation would be, you no longer love me as you did at first. See, this church not only lost their first love for Jesus, they probably lost the love for one another. They probably lost their love for the lost. All three of these things are tied up together in one. Yeah, they worked very hard as a church. Yes, they believed God. They held firmly to the faith. But they, they lost the heart of their faith. They lost their love for Jesus. They lost the love for each other. They lost the love for the lost. You know, this kind of thing can happen in a marriage as well. Guys, husbands, let me ask you a question. Do you remember when you first started dating your wife? Man, you wanted to make the best impression possible. You took her to this nice restaurant, sat down. You actually paid attention to what she was saying. You actually talked and she responded and you actually had what is called a conversation. Back and forth. You're you're talking. But... Now that she's committed to be your wife, it's been a few years, and you still take her out for dinner, but then for the next 45 minutes, you're both on your phone. And if by chance you want to talk to one another, you have to text one another, even though they're sitting right in front of each other. You know, they say, well, maybe the honeymoon is over. You know, that can happen on our relationship with God. We can lose that communication, that commitment, that passion, that romance, if you will, with our relationship with God. I mean, think about when you first came to Christ and you knew that your sin was forgiven. When those walls of anger and bitterness and guilt that that were up for so long come crumbling down. When that void that was in your life was actually filled with God Himself. And you were flooded with joy and and peace for one of the first times in your life. Do you remember how exciting it was to, to open up God's Word and hear these truths taught And for the very first time, you understood what was being said. Then there was worship. I mean, it wasn't just songs, but they were praise songs that touched your heart. And for many, just brought tears and and singing about how our sin has been forgiven. I remember when I first came to the Lord, and I was at Calvary Chapel, Riverside, in California, now Harvest. And I go in there, and and they're singing these songs. I'm like, these are great songs. I'm loving these songs. Then I open my Bible, and I start reading the Psalms. We sang this at church. This is awesome. And it was just exciting to to see, exciting to worship. Man, you had zeal. Yeah, you didn't have all the answers. But man, you wanted to tell people what Jesus has done in your life. And and, and man, that excitement just overflowed in your daily conversation. Then there was prayer. You could actually talk to God and know that he was listening and answering every word. Maybe even in your zeal for the Lord, you wanted to, to pray, you know, with your friends. You, you go to me, hey, let me, let me pray for our meal this morning. This would be awesome. Maybe you stood up on your chair. Oh, Lord, thank you for this food. And thank you for this meal. And bless it to our bodies. And if there's anyone in this restaurant that doesn't know Jesus, just raise your hand and did an altar call in the restaurant. Okay, maybe you didn't go that far, but doesn't that stir some memories in you? Is that how things are going for you today? Or have things changed a little bit? You still pray, of course, even for your meals, but it's not something you do as often. It's just a, a quick prayer if you think of it. 
Maybe you've gotten to the point where you're saying, oh, praying for our food isn't that important. God knows I'll study. Yeah, so I'll just stay at home. I'm not really worried about the virus. You're totally missing.